What a joy it is to be back with you again this morning to continue our journey through the marvelous letter to the Hebrews in chapter 2. If you would turn there with me again today, Hebrews chapter 2. As you do that, I want us to dwell on the fact that there are so many things in this life that we enjoy and appreciate on a daily basis, but the truth is we don't really appreciate them to the degree that they deserve. In fact, it's often not until we're without some of those daily conveniences that we really appreciate them for what they are. Last year, about this time, we were all reminded of the benefits of heating and electricity. As you remember, during the winter storm, as most, if not all of us, had at least rolling blackouts, if not complete loss of electricity. When I went to the Dominican Republic, I found out just how much I really appreciate air conditioning and hot water because we didn't have either of those things. And in my adult life, perhaps most of all, I've come to appreciate my parents and the sacrifice that they made for me on so many fronts. And I've realized that I couldn't really appreciate that until I had children of my own and began to make those same sacrifices myself. But above all those earthly examples, there's one event in human history that we as believers all benefit from and deeply appreciate, while at the same time failing to truly grasp the scope of its impact. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is an intentional act on the part of our Lord that affects our lives not only here in our temporal existence, but it will for all eternity. Typically, when we think of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we think about the the chief result of the incarnation, which, of course, is the fact that he died for our sins, that he might make propitiation for our sins. And that is the chief benefit of the incarnation, and we're right to focus on that. But it's also helpful to realize that's not the only implication of the incarnation. In fact, Jesus in his humanity accomplished on our behalf and in our place everything that we and our original parents, Adam and Eve, failed to do. In his humanity, Jesus perfectly fulfilled all the commandments of God and broke none of them. And so in referencing the significance of this, the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. He does that in Romans chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And what he means by that is that in the same way that Adam was our representative, and when he sinned, he plunged all of humankind into death, spiritual death and sin, Jesus Christ is also our representative for every person that's in Christ that we might have eternal life in him. And as we continue our study of the book of Hebrews this morning, we come to a section of scripture in which the author explains for us how the incarnation of Jesus Christ ties into this larger argument of the superiority of Christ over the angels. This is a section of scripture, if you remember, that began all the way back in verse 5 of chapter 1, and it's going to continue through verse 18 of chapter 2. Now, the last three lessons we've spent in Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 4, and that section really is sort of an intermission. It's It's the author stopping for a moment in the middle of his argument to apply the truth of that argument. But if you were with us, you remember we started with these six proofs of the superiority of Christ over the angels, and then we took a pause and we looked at the implication of that, and now this week we we pick right back up with the author continuing to prove that Jesus Christ is not only superior in every way, but specifically to the angels. And what we'll see is that his incarnation and what he accomplished as the God-man ties directly into this argument. And it's my prayer that our appreciation of Christ's incarnation will soar to new heights over the next several weeks as we look at these remaining verses of chapter 2. Now, just as a way of reminder, let me just tell you again, the theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ, and he argues that over and over again. Specifically, since verse 5, we've been looking at this theme. Jesus, as God's divine Son, is undeniably superior to the angels. In verses 5 to 14, he gave us those six proofs. I'll just put those there on the screen for you. He gave us those six proofs and then followed that with a stern warning 
in the beginning of chapter 2. It's the first warning in Hebrews. We'll see other warning passages. But essentially what he told us is that the gospel demands our greater attention. Because of this Jesus, who is the exalted Son of God, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, picking up in verse 5 of chapter 2, he's going to launch into further proofs of the fact that Jesus is superior to the angels. Let's read uh, Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 8. Verse 5 reads, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. This is our text for this morning. Lord willing, we'll make it all the way through these verses, which is probably a record for me, verses 5 to 8. And I'm not promising, but I'm thinking that's probably what's going to happen. Now, we're looking now at a seventh proof. We're picking right back up with the same argument. It's just as if he put a pause, he gave us the implication, and now he's right back into his argument. And here's proof number seven of the superiority of Christ over the angels. Dominion is not promised to angels. Dominion is not promised to angels. This is verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come. He begins with that word for, and if you've been studying the scripture for any time, you understand when you see for or therefore, you have to connect that back to the context. So what is he referring to when he says for? And I would argue he's not directly referring to the the implication that we just saw in the first four verses of chapter 2, but he's going back to his original argument. And he's referring back to the sixth proof that he made that Jesus is superior to the angels. So I want to look at those verses just to refresh our memory. What's the last thing that he said in regards to this argument? It comes at the end of chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now remember, if you were here with us, that quote is a direct quote from Psalm 110. It's one of the most famous messianic psalms in scripture, and we'll see it referenced again later in the book of Hebrews. But what he argues there is for the exaltation of Jesus. Remember, he's, he's supreme over all. He's seated at the right hand of God in the most authoritative position that is in existence. And so he's saying, based on that, because of that exaltation, and th- that angels do not share that exaltation, for he did not subject to angels the world to come. He's tying it back into that argument. He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Now, as I've said before, but it's important to say again, this mention of angels over and over again can be a distraction. And we don't want to do that because that's not his primary point. Remember, the angels just serve as a backdrop for what we learn about Christ. That's, the only, that's what he's doing. It's, a, it's sort of a rhetorical device to continue to, to, to throw the, the Lord Jesus Christ right in front of our face. So the primary concern is not angelology, the study of angels, but Christology, the study of Christ. And so in order to do that, he, he says, first of all, God the Father has not subjected the world to come to angels. That's an interesting phrase there, the world to come. What is he talking about? In fact, he says that, that he's been talking about that. He says, the world to come of which we are speaking, as if that's been in his mind this whole time. So the natural question is, what is this world to come? Well, we've already seen the fact that the Son has been exalted by the Father to his right hand. He's at the highest place of heaven. And so understand, Jesus is not waiting this morning for exaltation. 
He has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He currently, right now, in the present tense, is exalted at the right hand of the Father. What he's waiting for is the Father's appointed time in which the created order becomes a perfect reflection of the current heavenly reality. When those two meet, you remember the Lord taught us to pray and he said, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One day that's going to happen. That, that is that the earth, the, the earthly reign of Christ will take place and he will be the sovereign ruler over all and all of creation will perfectly obey him. That's what we're talking about, a physical kingdom. Now, there is a sense in which spiritually Christ reigns in the hearts of believers. He, he reigns through the church, and he's, he's causing his, his plans to take place even in the midst of a fallen world. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's looking forward to the literal kingdom in which Jesus will reign on this earth. We call that the millennial kingdom. The, a millennium is a thousand years. We're talking about a thousand-year reign of Christ on this planet. Now, we don't have time this morning to go into that, but I'll give you the reference if you want to study those things further. Revelation chapter 19 describes the second coming of Christ, and then chapter 20 in Revelation describes this literal reign of Christ in which Satan is bound for a thousand years, and Christ literally, literally rules on this planet. But I believe in context, that's what he's referring to when he says this world to come. Now, all of that said, don't miss the point. Here's the point. This coming world system in which Christ will reign as king is never spoken of in Scripture as being delegated to angels. Not anywhere, not ever. Now, this statement in verse 5 is really like a, a golf tee holding up a golf ball. And what the author's about to do is swing with all his might and hit that ball down range in the way of showing us something about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5 is just a prop, and he's going to show us something about the Lord's superiority. Now, before we dive into the weeds of this text, I'm afraid that we're going to get lost if we just dive into the minutia of, of his argument. So I want you to understand the big picture first. Because we're starting an argument here that's going to go all the way through chapter 2. And I don't want you to get lost. So here's the big idea of what he's saying. Follow along with this big picture argument. First of all, angels are not promised dominion over God's created order. That's verse 5. That's the first thing he says. Next, he's going to say that from the beginning, mankind has been given dominion over God's created order. Thirdly, he's going to argue that mankind failed to perfectly fulfill God's mandate of dominion. Fourthly, Jesus Christ became a man and perfectly fulfilled God's mandate given to mankind. And then finally, therefore, Jesus is the ultimate man. And he, by his willful humiliation on the cross, has earned authority over all things and has purchased salvation for sinful men. That's the flow of his argument, from angels to mankind to Jesus. And we're going to see that laid out. There's a lot of details that are not unpacked there, but that's the big idea. And so what we see is that Jesus has dominion over all things on two fronts. First of all, he has dominion over all things because that authority is inherently his as God. As the God-man, he is inherently over all things. But secondly, on the flip side of that, he has earned the right to dominion over all things as the perfect man. So in his humanity, he has earned the right to rule all things. So as the God-man, he doubly owns and rules all. That's the big picture that we're going to unravel over the next few weeks. But the intricate details that the author uses here are really just genius. It's a master piece of an argument that we're going to look at together. So we're going to dive back into the weeds of the text while keeping that big picture in mind. And then we're going to see how this builds off of one Old Testament passage. He's going to quote this morning from one Old Testament passage in Scripture. And that's going to fuel his argument for the next several weeks. That brings us to proof number 8 in verses 6 and 7. Proof number 8, dominion is given to mankind. Dominion is given to mankind, by that I mean over creation. Look back at chapter 2, verse 6. 
But one has testified somewhere saying. Now that's an interesting way to introduce a passage. Someone has said somewhere. Now, we could be tempted to think that the author is being flippant with the scripture. That he's just like, I don't really remember, but that's not important. That's not the issue. In fact, this psalm that he's going to quote is so famous that everyone would have known who wrote it and where it's found. Okay, it's from Psalm 8. The point of, of, of saying it this way, I believe, in context, is really his way of pointing our attention not to the human author, but the divine authorship of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture. Remember, this is an author in Hebrews that doesn't even take time to name himself, let alone name the human authors of the passages that he is quoting. And it's not to say that it's wrong to do that, okay? It's not, it's not wrong to give the reference in the person who wrote it. But, but it does give us an instructive point this morning that the reason the Scriptures continue to have relevance and authority in our life today is not primarily because of the human hand that pinned them. It's because of the divine inspiration of Scripture. And so he's pointing our attention to the fact that these are the words of God. And we almost always must keep that in mind because it's why the Scriptures have continuing, lasting significance and authority. Now, as I said, he's going to quote from Psalm chapter 8. Well, Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, we're going to read the entire psalm. So if you want to start turning there, that would be a good idea. Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, it's written by David. And David is really standing back in awe of God, giving worship to God because of one specific thing. It's because God has created man and given him the special privilege of being made in his image. That, that is an astonishing reality. And we see that here in Psalm 8. Look at Psalm 8, beginning in verse 1. We'll read the whole psalm. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries. To make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is a wonderful psalm. I wish we had time to walk through all of it, but I want you just to understand that what David is doing, in these first two verses especially, is sort of exploding in adoration and praise of God. He explodes into the psalm with, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And it's because he looks at creation, the grandeur of what God has made. And then he, he looks at himself in comparison to creation. And he says, How is it that you, this grand God who made all of this, cares about me? He had the experience that all of us should have when we look at creation. We see the bigness of God, the power of God, the majesty of God. And then we look at itty-bitty me and say, how does this make sense? That he would care for me. The connection point to the argument in Hebrews comes to us in the fact that he begins his quotation of this psalm in verse 4 of Psalm 8. And that's on purpose. He begins here, verse 6, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? He introduces this section by making the point, remember in verse 5, that the angels are not in dominion. But then it brings up the question, who has been given dominion over creation? The answer is mankind. God has delegated that responsibility not to angels but to men. And it's that, that for that reason that he turns us to man in Psalm 8. What is man that you remember him? What's the son of man? Which is just another way of saying humankind that you are concerned about him. And what, rather than jumping immediately to the Lord Jesus Christ, he backs up. He begins with this foundation for the argument as a whole 
by talking about mankind's role in creation. The book of Hebrews really covers the whole of Scripture. That's why I'm excited to, to study it together because it takes us all over the place to the different aspects of creation all the way through to the end. Today, we're going to have the privilege of looking at, at two aspects of stewardship that God has given to mankind in creating man. Two aspects of the stewardship that God's given to man. And the way that the author argues for this is by the use of something called parallelism. The idea that is in Hebrew, it's, it's common when, when something is poetic, rather than rhyming by the words rhyming, the ideas rhyme. So the first line and the second line will say the same thing in two different ways. And that's what's going to happen here in Psalm 8. Now the first aspect of man's stewardship that he highlights here is man's honor. Man's honor. Look at the first line of, of the parallel statements here. He says, you've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. And before we dive into the significance of that statement, there are a couple of, of textual issues that I need to make you aware of. Because if you read this and compare it to what we read earlier in our English Bibles, there's a couple of words that are different. Let me just quickly explain why that is. You notice that phrase there here in Hebrews, for a little while, made him for a little while lower than the angels. Well, that can also be translated as a little lower than the angels. That same Hebrew word can refer to a, a short period of time or a, a small degree of difference. In your English Bible in Psalm 8, it takes the view of a small degree of difference, a little lower than the angels. But the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, that our author is quoting from, takes that word as being a short period of time for a little while lower than the angels. This is how the Jews interpreted that Hebrew word, and that's why they translate it this way for a short period of time. The other word that's going to be different in our English Bible in Psalm 8 and what's quoted here in, in Hebrews 2 is the word angels. The Hebrew word that's translated as angels is actually the word Elohim. Now, you probably know that word even if you don't know Hebrew. It's typically the word for God. It's a more generic word for God. But it can be translated in some context to mean heavenly beings. And that's how the Jews took it. And that's why they translated it as, as angels here. That's how we come up with this translation. You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. And it is a faithful, helpful translation. And it ties in, obviously, to the larger argument the author is making. Now, the bigger question is, who does the author of Hebrews have in mind when he writes this? Is it Jesus or is it mankind? When he says, you've made him for a little while lower than the angels, who does him, the pronoun, refer to? I'm going to make the argument that it's both. It's both the Lord Jesus Christ and mankind. He starts with mankind. And next week, he's going to show how this refers to Jesus. He's doing both. Psalm 8 is not historically understood to be a messianic psalm. That's, it's not a psalm about the Messiah, primarily. But it's quoted several times in the New Testament referring to Jesus because Jesus became a man. And so it does apply to him in his humanity. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to show us. But first, we have to understand how this speaks of us as human beings. And then we will understand the point he's making about Jesus next week. So let's look at the original meaning. When he says here in verse 7... You, God the Father, have made him, man, for a little while lower than the angels. He means that positively. He's not looking at that as a, as a bad thing. He's saying, look how small I am and that you've made me a little lower than the angels. He sees that as a glorious thing. He's praising God. Remember how it starts, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. This is, this is praise to God. You've made mankind, men and women, just a little lower for a little while, lower than the angels. It's an unfathomable thought. Also, that phrase, for a little while, what does that naturally insinuate? That it's not going to be that way forever. For a little while. 
We're going to get to that next week. He's going to flesh that out. It was only for, for a short time. That's not how God intends for it to be forever. That's why we're talking about the world to come. He's pointing us to what's coming in the future. But he says in order to understand how glorious the future is going to be, you have to understand what's happened here first in this created order. And so for now, we have to understand the significance of God's plan here. That brings us to the second statement here, uh, the second part of this, these parallel statements. Verse 7, you've made him for a little while lower than the angels. Secondly, statement number two, you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Remember, he's saying the same thing two different ways. You've made him a little bit for a little while lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. What's he talking about? In what way has God crowned mankind, men and women, with glory and honor? He made us in his image. Remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. This is an astounding idea. An astounding statement. As you follow through the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, you see this continual cyclical pattern. God speaks, creation obeys, and God says it is good. He speaks, it happens, he declares it to be good. That, that cyclical pattern follows all the way through until the entire universe is made except for one being, mankind. And it's as if he pauses, and instead of just saying, let there be, as he has for everything else, let there be light, let there, there be an expanse, he says, let us. Who is us? Who's he talking to? This is an inner Trinitarian conversation. He's talking to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness. This is an astounding thought. No other created being, including the angels, received this special privilege. And this is why David refers to it as being crowned with glory and honor. He's crowned mankind with glory and honor. So what does it mean exactly that human beings are made in the image of God? Have you ever thought about that? We know it must be significant. We know it means that we're, we, we don't become gods. We are not God. God is God. We are men and women. So what does it mean that he's made us in the image of God? It means that we as human beings are given certain capacities that reflect God's nature either exclusively or to a degree that every other created being does not share. Some of those capacities, just as a short list, some of the ways that we reflect the image of God would be advanced intellectual abilities, Advanced abilities to reason, the ability to experience emotion at a deep level, the appreciation of abstract concepts like art and beauty, the ability to have intimate relationships with God first and foremost and then with other human beings, and the ability to give voluntary intentional worship to God. You ever think about that? God is glorified through creation generally. It brings him glory because it testifies to who he is. But only human beings on this planet actually voluntarily, willfully give glory to God with our own words, on purpose. It's a reflection of the fact that we're made in his image. By the way, as a side note, this is why the theory of evolution is such a devastating error. It's not just that the theory of evolution doesn't pass the scrutiny of the scientific method. That's also true. But that's not really the biggest issue. The biggest issue is it undermines the design that God has for the created order. The theory of evolution places man on the same plane as plants and animals. This is a dangerous error because it misses the significance of what God did when he says, let us make man in our image. We're doing something different when it comes to making man. It's crucial that we understand that. This is the reason, by the way, that human beings go to zoos to see animals in cages and not the other way around. You will never see a zoo of people owned by gorillas. Planet of the Apes is, has no basis in reality, and it never will. That's because mankind alone 
has received the gracious gift of God's image. And that's why David says, you've crowned us. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Let me ask you, how seriously have you thought about the fact that God created you as a human being made in his image? How seriously have you thought about that? Even in our sinful state after the fall, though we are marred by sin, we are dead in sin, we still bear the image of God. Have you ever stopped to thank God for choosing to make you in his image? Just think of how much of a privilege it is to be part of the only group of beings in God's created order to receive the distinction and the privilege of being made in his own image. The chief privilege, of course, is that we get to know God in a real relationship. We, we get to gather every Sunday morning and we sing songs of praise and unison to his name as the rest of the created beings just go about their business unaware even of God above them. We get to gather intentionally and join our voices to praise the great God of the universe who made us. We get to read his word and not only that but the Holy Spirit comes along and works in us so that as we read the word we understand it and can apply it to our lives. And he causes us to grow in sanctification. Listen, don't let the sinful fallen world make you think that you are nothing but an animal. You have a stewardship given to you by God. The privilege of being an image bearer of the Lord Jesus Christ, God in heaven. Even angels, as glorious as they are, don't share that privilege. But of course the chief reason that this should matter to you this morning, and if you hear nothing else I say, please hear this. The chief reason that this should matter to you this morning is because Jesus Christ did not come to die for the salvation of angels or animals. He came as a man so that he could die as a man for the salvation of mankind, men and women who repent and believe in him. Remember, human beings are not the only created beings who have rebelled against God. Satan and many angels have willfully sinned and rebelled against God and live in rebellion against him to this day. But God has no rescue plan for angels. Don't you see? You and I are sinners who have rebelled against a holy God and our sin makes us guilty and worthy of his wrath, just like the angels. But the difference between us and the angels is that God sent his son as a human being so that he could die as a sacrifice for every human being who would repent of their sins and put their faith in him alone. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, don't waste this opportunity to understand the significance of what he's done for you. If you will repent and believe, you will be saved from his wrath over your sin. And that is only extended to human beings. It's also only extended in this life. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be rescued today. What a gift to be an image bearer of God. But it's now important for us to understand that this gift of bearing the image of God also comes with responsibilities. And this is the second aspect of our stewardship. Not only are we given the, 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 the stewardship of being image bearers, but secondly... It's man's dominion. So we've seen man's honor, and now we see man's dominion. Again, we'll see two parallel statements. Let's read both of them together. He says, let's start again at the top of verse 7. You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. There are two statements. You've appointed him, that you've put him over, in authority, over the works of your hands. But secondly, you've put all things under or in subjection to him. So he, he covers it on both fronts. Man's put over creation. God has subjected creation under man. Both of those statements emphasize the same important reality. As the image bearers of God, he has given us the unique responsibility of stewarding the rest of his creation. We are given authority over creation to be the caretakers of the created world. And we see this plainly on the pages of Scripture back in Genesis chapter 1. Let's look together in Genesis 1, 
verses 26 to 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule. Look at that word. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. See, look at that. Subdue the earth and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of all the earth and every tree that has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and everything that moves on the earth which has life. I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And then that famous verse, verse 31, God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So this special gift of being an image bearer of God comes with unique capacities that are accompanied by unique responsibilities. We are given the task, the special task, of cultivating and ruling over the rest of God's created order and of filling the earth. It's a good reminder that the presence of mankind on the planet was intended by God to be for the good of creation. Man was to cultivate the garden, and that cultivation was to cause it to flourish Our role on the planet as human beings is to rule over creation by maximizing its resources for the flourishing of mankind unto the glory of God. Now, in our fallen state, it's true that we fail at this in many ways, and many times we sinfully abuse and harm God's creation, sometimes even unintentionally because of our fallen state. But hear me on this. The evolutionary mindset that teaches that man's presence on the earth is detrimental rather than helpful is completely unbiblical. It has no foundation in Scripture. The earth is in a better state on the whole because it's cultivated by mankind. The earth is more productive and more useful because of the exercise of the image of God within us, even as fallen human beings. If you need an example of that, Let's just look around at Lance Thompson Elementary. Just look around for a minute. Look at every part of this building around you. Every single thing you see is an expression of mankind exercising the image of God within him to fulfill the role of dominion and cultivation of the planet. Think about this. Every single item in this building was built using only the raw materials that were put here by God at creation. We have nothing else to work with except what God put on the earth from the beginning. And so mankind, because of the the image of God within him, takes the dirt and the grass and the trees and the rocks and the minerals, and he puts those things together as he exercises the image of God within him to create beautiful, useful things. And so we see it on display here. You're sitting on it. You walk on it. Now, this last statement from Psalm 8 is the real point that the author's driving home. This is why he's chosen to quote this psalm. Verse 8, you've put all things in subjection under his feet. He wants us to see clearly, angels are not given dominion. Mankind has been given dominion over God's creation. And that leads us to this closing statement in verse 8. In verse 8, we're going to see the point and the problem. The point of what he's been saying, and then one major problem. First of all, let's look at the point, verse 8. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Him here refers still to mankind. So he put all things in subjection to him. He's really just giving a summary statement of the point that he's been making through Psalm 8. And and this final statement in verse 8 serves like a bracket. We had verse 5, 
the angels are not in dominion. And then he quotes Psalm 8, and he brackets that with the point, mankind has been given dominion. In subjecting it to him, he subjected all things unto him. And we know what he means because when we read Psalm 8, when we read the rest of Psalm 8, all things is spelled out, spelled out as animals, other aspects of creation. He's put all of that underneath mankind. So the point is that man and not angels have been delegated this responsibility of dominion over his creation. But if you're still awake this morning, and I hope you are, then you're likely starting to realize something. If we're supposed to have authority over God's creation, then why is creation so often outside of our control? I don't know if you noticed, but the creation does not perfectly obey us. And that brings us to the problem. Here's the problem. End of verse 8. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Again, him being mankind. But now, in the present tense, we don't yet see all things in subjection to him. God has, make no mistake about it, God has most certainly given us the gift of his image and he's given us the stewardship of dominion over his creation. But the reality is, the creation often rebels against human authority. Even with all the advancements and technology that God has so graciously allowed us to, to invent, we still find ourselves often at the whim of the creative world rather than the other way around. Animals attack and kill humans. Tsunamis destroy entire cities. Crops fail to produce as expected. I mean, even our own dogs ignore our commands half the time, right? The truth is we're, we're far from being in perfect control of God's created order. And the reason for this, unfortunately, is not a mystery. We know both from Scripture and our own human experience that, that though God made us perfectly in his image in the garden, our original parents and we ourselves have rebelled against him and have sinned against God and his design. And the result of that sin was immediate spiritual death and separation from God and our relationship to him, a curse on God's creation, and ultimately physical death that would follow. Let's return to Genesis again, and let's look at the terrible result of sin and the punishment that God gave to Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, verses 16 to 19. He begins with Eve. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Verse 17, then to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Because of sin, beginning with Eve, the two primary and wonderful roles given to her of bearing children and being the helpmate to her husband would now both be difficult and strained as a result of sin. And the primary work given to the man of cultivating the earth would now be met with resistance from the creation itself. This, by the way, is when work became work. It was because of the fall. Work is good. It was given to man before the fall. It became difficult here because of sin. The garden that God designed for Adam and Eve had perfectly responded to his efforts of cultivation. Think about that. Perfect response. You, you edge your lawn, and it stays like that. I mean, think about that. That, that was Adam in the garden. It, it, it obeyed. It did what he wanted it to do. But now, God says the man's going to have to give every ounce of his physical strength to, to, to beat into submission the ground to bring forth what it is that he wants for bread and for food. These punishments given to Adam and Eve are, are really representative of how difficult it would now be to carry out these special roles as God's image bearers of having dominion and filling the earth and cultivating it. 
This is the answer to the riddle of why we don't currently see all things living in subjection to mankind. It's part of the devastating consequences of sin. We are still image bearers, and we still have this divine mandate. And so we do functions as steward, function as stewards of creation, but we do so very, very imperfectly. But even in the wake of such devastation, God gives us an incredible ray of hope, of grace upon grace. Because before he even gives Adam and Eve their consequences, he starts by giving Satan his consequences. I skipped over that part on purpose, but I want us to go there now. Because there we find this marvelous ray of hope. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, that is hostility, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here we have what is called the first gospel message. This is the first beautiful hint of the gospel given to man, right there in the garden, right on the heels of the very first sin. When God explains that, that there will come one, singular, the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent, this serpent who has led us into sin, we are guilty for our sin, but tempted into sin by Satan, he will be destroyed. Yes, he will bruise this one on the heel, but that will prove to be momentary. The seed will crush the head of the serpent. In short, we will have victory in and through this one over sin and death and all that has come because of our failure to obey the Lord. In a real way, understand that the author of Hebrews intends for us to feel this strange dichotomy that Adam and Eve must have felt on that very difficult day. On the one hand, God created us as the crown jewel of his creation, the image bearers of God, and delegated to us the care of everything else he'd made. And yet, on the other hand, we failed. We failed. Right out of the gate. It doesn't tell us how long, but we don't get the, the, the indication that Adam and Eve went on for thousands of years before they sinned. It was, it was a brief period of time. On the one hand, we rejoice with David this morning in Psalm 8. Oh, the wonders that God has crowned us with glory and honor. And then at the same time, we feel this utter devastation as we look around at what sin has done. And how we've added our sin to the sin of our original parents. Chiefly, it ruined our relationship with God, and it ruined our relationship with others. It's ruined our relationship with creation as a whole. We do not see all things subjected to us. But I hope that right behind that feeling of despair this morning, there's a wave of another emotion inside of you. The feeling of hope. The feeling of hope. Because next week, in the very next verse... The author of Hebrews is going to turn our attention from what we see or from what we don't see to what we see. He's going to answer the question, what do we do when we look at the devastation of our sin and all that it's produced around us? What do we do when we see that it's not the way it's supposed to be? He's going to say, we turn our eyes somewhere else to someone else. But as we close our time this morning, it's appropriate that we respond to the truths that we've seen together in this wonderful text. Let me just give you two simple, obvious ways that we must respond to what we have heard this morning. Number one, glorify God's design with your worship. Glorify God's design with your worship. It's appropriate that we stop and contemplate the fact that God has bestowed on us so great an honor as being his image bearers. When's the last time that you specifically called out to God in prayer, thanking him for creating you in his image? Have you ever done that? Have you ever thanked him for giving you the capacity of relationship with him? Have you thanked him for giving you the capacity of deep relationships with other members in this body? 
the sweet fellowship that we enjoy together, where does that come from? It's rooted in the fact that we're image bearers of God. Have you ever thanked him for the fact that you have the gift of appreciating and enjoying the beautiful creation around us, something the animals don't have? Have you ever thanked him for the mental and physical abilities that he's given to you to cultivate his creation for his glory and for the benefit of mankind? So We need to join David this morning in this outpouring of praise to God. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We sing that with David. But secondly, honor God's design with your life. Honor God's design with your life. How seriously do you take your role this morning as an image bearer of God? How sensitive are you to even the slightest temptation to rebel against the way God has made you? Part of that is taking seriously the mandate to steward his creation. It means that we resist any urge to rebel against the way he's made us and instead we embrace the full package of gifts that he's uniquely given to us to steward them for his glory and for the benefit of others. Are you this morning maximizing the giftedness that God has given to you for the sake of his glory and for the benefit of other people? Listen, our understanding of the fact that we're image bearers of God should affect the way that we serve our family, it should affect the way that we serve in this church. It should affect our work ethic in the marketplace. It should affect the way that we even take care of our house and our possessions. We should take seriously the mandate as image bearers of God of being good stewards of his creation and using that giftedness as a benefit for his glory. But when we're tempted to despair because we look around and all we see is how we're failing, and we take courage this morning and rest in the fact that God has provided a substitute. And the good news is that he didn't just die in our place. First, he lived in our place. All these things that we fail at so miserably, he did them all. And then he offered that perfect life as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. What a gift. May we honor him with our worship. May we honor him with our lives. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is uh, an immense privilege to be your people, to know the joy of salvation that you have purchased for us. You accomplished what we could not in keeping the law of God. You accomplished what we could not as image bearers of God. You, you did it all perfectly. But you didn't do that just to be an example for us. You did that so that you could then lay down that perfect life to pay for our sins. Help us never to stop being overcome by the beauty of the gospel. Help us to join our voices with David and give you the praise that you deserve as the majestic, holy, wonderful God who has chosen for reasons that are beyond us to make us as human beings in your image that we might not only have access to you through Christ in this life, but that we might be with you face to face for all eternity through him. Oh, we long for that day when we will see you face to face, when we will be made as Christ is in sinless perfection. Until that day, may we serve you and love you faithfully. It's in Christ's name we pray.